Well, dear congregation, I would ask you to please turn your very prayerful attention to that passage that I read to you in your hearing, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. In our week-by-week ministry of God's Word, verse by verse, we arrive now in the seventh chapter of this epistle, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Now concerning the things whereof ye wrote unto me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife, and let every woman have her own husband. As we arrive here in this chapter this evening, there's a number of things I need to remind us of as we come to this passage. First of all, as you know, I've said very often, we do find that the chapters are very helpful, the verses, the chapters, but we have to remember that in the original, in this original epistle and in all of the Bible, there were no verses, no chapters, no divisions. They do help us to navigate and find certain verses, where they are, and so on. These have been put in by man, and there's nothing wrong with that. But it always needs to be said, we need to add that caveat, that sometimes with these chapter divisions, we can lose the sense of the congruity of things. We can lose the sense of the original. So in purview of this epistle, we must not lose the coherency of the verses that come from, really, chapter 6 into chapter 7. What has Paul been saying in chapter 6? Well, he has been speaking of how the Christian makes his decisions in life. We do not make them on a whim, He tells us that we are not our own anymore. We were bought at a price. At what price was that? The blood of Jesus Christ. We're told by the Apostle Paul, as he bids the elders at Miletus farewell, in Acts 20, verse 28, the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And Paul reminds us here, look at the close of chapter 6. For ye were bought with a price. Therefore, Glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So both body, my body, my hands, my feet, everything that I can touch, see, and feel, and the things that I cannot are God's. God has bought my body and my spirit and my spouse. If she's a Christian, and she ought to be a Christian, if I'm a believer, We're told here that the Christian is to marry only in the Lord. We are not to be unequally yoked, we're told in 2 Corinthians 6, with unbelievers. Now, if you are a Christian, you weren't a Christian before, but the Lord saves you, and you're in a marriage, he will teach us here, you don't leave your wife. You stay with your wife, and you continue to pray, and you witness to her. Who knows what the Lord might do? But here in this passage now, and in purview of the previous chapter, we must not lose the coherent and natural flow of what Paul is saying here as he moves from one subject to the next. And let me say there's often a very clear connection as you see Paul moving from one chapter to the next. What has he been saying? He's been speaking about, as I said, the Christian life. But the Christian life is not how I think I should live but how God tells me I should live. And what is expedient for God's glory in my life? Not what's expedient for me, not what pleases me. I'm now his. I belong to him. My whole being. I am the Lord's. My whole life, every minute of my day, every hour that I live belongs to the Lord. Do you remember last time in chapter 6, he gives a very wonderful principle of how the Christian makes decisions in his life. He says in verse 12 of chapter 6, All things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. There are two principles that we see there. One has said, All things are lawful that are lawful to me, I can do. All things that are lawful to me are lawful for me to do. But not everything that is lawful will be expedient in my life as a Christian. 
He doesn't mean there where he says, all things are lawful to me. I can be a murderer. I can be an adulterer. I can do what I like in my life. He's not saying that. He says, all things that are lawful are lawful. You can do these things and you should do them. But there is a principle. There's an overarching principle that all things are expedient. That word expedient, as we saw, means not everything gives glory to God. Not everything certainly brings praise to God. Not everything is helpful. Not everything will redound to the glory of God in the Christian life. You know, you, you can pray, but you can pray for hours and hours and hours and never go and do something else for the Lord. We are not just to pray, but we are to do other things, aren't we? Not everything is expedient. We have to consider many things in the Christian life. And again, there is another principle that he gives. Look at the rest of verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. You, you know, there are many things that people, good things that people can do, but if it becomes an addiction, you know, as we said last week, and he moves on to the, the subject of meats and foods and things like that, it's lawful to eat food, but don't ever let food have power over you. It's called gluttony. Don't ever let drink have power over you. Don't ever let anything have mastery over you. Paul, what does he say? I buffet my body and I bring it into subjection. Lest after I've preached unto others, I'm a castaway. I'm useless in the ministry. And I am, as he says, a docimos, unprofitable and a castaway. So those are the two key principles that he's been teaching us. And the same applies as he moves on now to this whole subject of marriage, whether to marry or not to marry. And uh, you will see the connection. One of the key verses, if you look at the chapter that we read, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and the verse 17, one of the key verses in this chapter follows on on that same uh, premise, if you like. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 17. And remember, the whole subject here is whether to marry or not to marry. And we've got to, as it were, take the doctrine that we've learned in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12, and bring it with us into this next chapter. Those two overarching principles. Look what he says. But as God hath distributed or given to, if you like, to every man... As the Lord hath called everyone, so let him walk. He's been teaching here about those who marry and those who don't marry. As we will learn tonight, some are gifted to marry and some are not. Some are gifted to stay single. And that's not a blight on your life. That's a gift. And it shouldn't be looked down upon. And marriage too is a gift. And that shouldn't be looked down upon. Both are good. But here's the issue. Do you do it to God's glory? Will your marriage be to God's glory? That's the question. The Apostle Paul himself was not called to marry. It was not the will of God that he should marry anyone. It was not the will of God for Paul. And Paul was not wrong to not marry. And as we'll see tonight, the Jews, there was a Jewish law that if a man... And we'll read from the Mishnah. Didn't marry by the age of 20. Well, it was considered very sinful. And you can see perhaps why some at Corinth, particularly the Jews, looked down upon him. There was a mixture here of Jews and Gentiles, Greeks in the church. And this would have presented a problem. Now, Paul's singleness and being a virgin in that sense wasn't a blight upon him. And it was not something he or others were to be ashamed of and uh, to feel bad about. And we'll look at the three types of eunuchs which the Lord Jesus speaks about in Matthew 19 this evening. Well, you see, it was a gift both to marry or to be single. But let me say this. Both come with enormous responsibilities. Even if you're single, that comes with an enormous 
responsibility. You don't use your singleness for yourself. Use it for the Lord. And the same with marriage. You don't even use your marriage for yourself. You use it for God's glory and for his praise. There are enormous sacrifices if you're married. And, but they are also good privilege, tremendous privileges. There's the tremendous privilege of having a spouse. But that comes with a great responsibility. You have to now think about someone else, your husband, your wife, and then children are brought into the equation. And these also come with enormous privileges, as I said. But everything needs to be brought under that spotlight. You know, everything is lawful, but look, it better redound to the glory of God. Is it expedient? You know, and some people, let me say, they marry and their wives become goddesses. Or the husband becomes a god. And God is not God anymore. Or their children become little gods in the home. And that's sinful. That's wrong. So we have to get these things right from Scripture. Well, he's just finished saying, look at verse 18 of chapter 6. Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body, but he that committeth fornications sinneth against his own body. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you? This can only be true of the Christian, because only the Christian is born again, only the Christian is indwelt by the Spirit of God, no one else. And he says, which ye have of God. There was the gift of God, and ye are not your own, and so on. You were bought with a price. So let's keep all of that in mind. And those two principles that I mentioned in verse 12 of chapter 6, the principle of expediency, does it enhance my life? Does it honor God? Will this marriage relationship or singleness enhance my life to be expedient to the praise of God? And then the other principle of power. Will this potential husband or potential wife be a sort of God in my life, or one that will serve to the praise of God? Will God have the first place? In a Christian marriage, it should always be God first. Then the husband, as we will see the order from Scripture. God first. Of course, the wife, as we'll see, must honor and submit to her husband, but in the Lord. She must submit to him so long as he doesn't ask her to do something sinful or wrong. She must yield, submit to her husband, and he must love his wife as Christ loved the church and so on. Now, we'll come to this verse and just think upon a few things this evening. Now, first of all, I must preface what the Apostle Paul is going to speak about here, about marriage. As we come to chapter 7, I must say this and make this very clear that all Paul speaks about here, about marriage and singleness, is not the only place in Scripture. There are plenty of other chapters in the Word of God, so we don't say this is the complete, as it were, section on marriage. As we will see tonight, there are plenty of passages that give us teaching. But what Paul is giving here comes because the church have asked him questions. Look at verse 1. Now concerning the things wherefore of ye wrote unto me. The church wrote to him with specific questions. And one of them was about virgins, about being single and so on. Paul here, you notice this word here, now concerning. It's a Greek preposition. And the word is peri. And you notice every time he uses it, first of all, he says it here in verse 1, now concerning the things whereof ye wrote unto me. And here he's going to speak about marriage, and he's going to deal with all of those questions that I asked. And then if you look down at the verse 25, he uses that same word again, peri, now concerning virgins. Another question I asked. Then you turn to chapter 8, verse 4. He uses that same word again. As concerning, therefore, the eating of those things that are offered 
in sacrifice unto idols. And he deals with all of those questions that they asked. And then you get to chapter 12, verse 1 again. He says, now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I would not have you ignorant. And he deals with all of those spiritual gifts. And then you notice again in chapter 16, verse 1, he, he deals with another subject. Have a look there. It's important we see that now. Concerning the collection for the saints. That means the church offering. And of course, the, the money, the collection for the saints was for the ministry of the work. As I have given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do ye. What Paul wrote to the Corinthians here about collection and taking up an offering, he says, on the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store. You're very familiar with that verse. I read it to you every Lord's Day when we take up the offering. Paul didn't just write it to the church here at Corinth. He wrote it to all the churches in Galatia. This was the standard that they were to follow. So we need to understand when he uses the word here concerning, and he's dealing with specific issues here, these are the questions that they have been asking, and he replies in full concerning this. The other thing I need to set before you is that I want you to see, if you turn to 2 Peter 3.15, that what Paul is writing here is Holy Scripture. Paul is not giving his own thoughts and ideas, and Peter confirms this for us in 2 Peter 3.15. 2 Peter 3.15. And he says this, an account of the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul also concerning the wisdom given unto him hath written unto you. As also, notice, in all his epistles, speaking of them of the things in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest. Now notice, as they do also the other scriptures. So what Paul is doing, rather Peter is doing, is he's including Paul's words in the whole of scripture. He says here, as they do the other scriptures. So what Peter is saying is, what Paul has written are the scriptures. And many people twist the things that Paul says. So we have it on record that whatever Paul writes here, we can have assurance, is God's word. And God's word is pure, it's without error. Even what Paul says here, he says uh, he's very careful. Look at what he says in the closing words of this chapter. He says, I think also that I have the Spirit of God. Even as he writes, he writes with a sense of trepidation and fear. He's very careful what he writes. The Spirit is moving him along to write these things. And giving words to say, as the church has been addressing him with many concerning matters. Now you know from our previous studies that the church is an absolute mess. And Apollos is with Paul. We know this, 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And he doesn't feel it's right to go back at this stage. Many things need to be sorted out. And there were many problems at Corinth. As we begin to discuss this matter of marriage, we need to just first of all appreciate that there were various, we know from our previous studies, chapter 1, there were schisms, weren't there? There were divisions within the church. And... Paul says, I can partly believe this. Not only Chloe's household have told me this, but the delegate, delegation of men came back and reported this. But there were also, and understandably so, there were Jews as well as Greeks in the church, and they had varying views on marriage. To the Jew, marriage was just a done deal. That was something so essential, it was part of the fabric of the Jewish culture and life. They were raised with this. As I said, it was a Jewish tradition that if a man was not married by the age of 20, well, he was living in sinful thoughts and he was sinning all of his life. In the Babylonian Tamlet, in Kudoshan 29b, we read, a man who reaches 20 years of age and is not married spends his days in sin. 
in sin again. Is it really so? Rather say that he spends all his days in sinful thoughts. Well, perhaps there were many Jews thinking that. And particularly with regards to Paul, because Paul wasn't married. And it was expedient for him not to be married. He had that gift. He, he, he was not, and he could do many things not being married. He could go on all those missionary journeys here, there, and not be tied, as it were, in a physical sense. But there were the Greek philosophers who advised against marriage. And I won't go into the details, but some of them are quite humorous in a wrong sense. Well, many of the Greeks thought like that. The modern society, it's very prevalent today. Marriage is almost looked down upon, isn't it, today? As if it's just a ball and chain around you. And, uh, well, this is a terrible thing to do. But friends, we have the word of God. And marriage is a good thing. It's the first thing I want to say. And many people, Paul, he writes, he begins by saying, Now concerning things, wherefore... You wrote unto me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. He's not saying it's bad for a man to touch a woman, but he's also saying it's good for a man not to touch a woman. But the scriptures also say, don't they, in Genesis, it's not good for a man to be alone. Now, not every man is gifted with that. Not every man has had the ability that the Apostle Paul had. There were also some that were advocating complete abstinence from any marriage, any physical union in that marriage. And there were some that were advocating a complete dissolving of marriages. Well, the scriptures have much to say on this. Marriage is a good thing. And we'll consider this first of all. If you turn with me to Genesis chapter 2, let us just tonight... Of course, you have to appreciate if you've come perhaps for the first time to our midweek service, they more tend to be more study and turning to the pages of Scripture than at other times, and it's important that we do that. So there will be quite a bit of referencing tonight, and I'll seek to expound on some of these passages that we looked at, look at. Now, first of all, we see here that marriage was ordained by God even before the fall. So marriage is a good thing. And everything was good when God made the world in six literal days and he made man. And he brought man or Eve to man. It was good. Work was good. You know, work is not a curse. If you do work as a Christian, you do it to the glory of God. And you serve your employer well. And you do that to the praise of Almighty God. But we read in Genesis 20, uh, verse two, verse, chapter 2, verse 22, we read here, look at the end of verse 22. We read that God brought her unto the man. That tremendous. Almighty God brought Eve to the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife. So leaving, you leave your parents and you cleave to another. And that's for life. It's a life bond, a union. The two, we read, shall become one flesh. Notice, and they shall be one flesh. End of verse 24. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not Ashamed. That's tremendous, isn't it? Almighty God is the one who brings the wife to Adam. And you know it's true. God brings to every man his bride. God brings his bride, a man's bride, to himself by providence, by many ways. The Lord works in mysterious ways. We have that wonderful case, don't we, of Rebecca and Isaac. You remember at the well there. And uh, even now the servant of Abraham went. But that was all in the providence of God. And then we have that wonderful providence of Ruth and Boaz. How the Lord brought Ruth to Boaz. The Lord did it. Rachel, also, she was at the well when Jacob went, didn't he? 
to Laban, fleeing away. He wasn't expecting to meet his wife there. But my friends, let me put it this way. If a man seeks first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, God will provide. It's not right for a man to look in all the wrong places, in bars and discotheques and places like that for his bride, especially if he's a Christian. You should never frequent those places. Where should you meet your bride? Where's the best place? In church. It's where you'll meet a godly person. And the Lord will provide. You may look around and say, well, there aren't people my age. Well, the Lord can bring somebody in. That can change in a heartbeat. The Lord can bring somebody in. And the Lord works through very natural circumstances and providentially. And it's never good to force things. Let me say this, every godly husband has a wife sent by God. And our aim should be to try to be godly men and godly women, and the Lord will provide. So we see here, Adam says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now, how did Adam, this is a good question, how did Adam know? Because Adam was in a deep sleep. God must have told him, I've done this. Who was there? Who were the witnesses? God was the witness to this marriage in the garden. God told him. And so we notice these words. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife. And they shall be one flesh. And that union, my friends, is for life. Till death do us part. So first of all, marriage has a real and divine approval. It is instituted by God, not by the state. And the state, therefore, has no right to usurp. And marriages between male and female, between men and men and woman with woman and so on, you don't see that. The human race would cease to exist. It's a terrible day that we live in. Now, here in the beginning... This is most wonderful and most right that God brought them together. And we can say, can't we, with Hebrews 13, verse 4, marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. It is a sacred union that God has designed for our good. And let me say this, a good and godly Christian marriage is one of the greatest bedrocks of society. But really, it has to be a Christian marriage if it's going to be of any worth. I'm not dismissing other marriages, but Christian marriage, where God is on it, and the husband, by the power of God, is a good husband. He loves his wife as Christ loved the church, and the wife is a good wife. And she obeys and submits to her husband as unto the Lord, we're told. This is a godly marriage. But sadly, we live in a sinful world where feminism and uh, all kinds of things are trumped and really bring great desecration and damage upon marriage today. So the subject of marriage is a very important one, isn't it? If you look at verse 39, 1 Corinthians 7, here Paul is there speaking about those who are virgins and then want to marry. It says, she is at liberty, 1 Corinthians 7, 9, to be married to whom she will, either the, the widow or the virgin. If the widow's husband dies, she can marry. But notice, only in the Lord. And that means to a believer. No Christian should ever be united to an unbeliever and choose to enter to be unequally yoked to an unbeliever. That is wrong. Something spiritually wrong with you. You're either unsaved and you are entering into a very, very dangerous relationship if that is the case. 2 Corinthians 6.14 Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? 
And what communion hath light with darkness? Now something else, I, I want to say this, I think it's very important as we speak about marriage. Marriage should never be a private thing. I know at home we have our private life, but it should be public because oaths are made. And I want to show you from Scripture how oaths were made. First of all, we can think there in the Garden of Eden. Now, I know there was nobody else. There was Adam and Eve, but there was God. And God brought them together. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, and the two shall be one. There was a declaration there on Adam's part and a showing of commitment and loving union to his wife. And she was to be what? His helpmeet. And that's where so many get it wrong. The husband and the wife. Yes, they are made both in the image of God. But the wife is called time and time and time and time again in the scriptures to be a helpmeet to the husband. That is scripture. It's not that she's less, but she has a different function in that marriage relationship. And that is vital that we see. But first of all, we'll see that marriage should be a public declaration and for several reasons. If you turn with me to Ruth chapter 4, here's just an example of it. And you know the story about Ruth and Boaz. Boaz, the kinsman redeemer. And he asked the redeemer, her husband has died and they've lost lands and everything else. And there has to be a public witness to what has taken place, this marriage. And uh, Boaz goes to the town gate, Ruth chapter 4, verse 1, when Boaz, then went Boaz up to the gate and sat him down there, and behold, the kinsman of whom Boaz spake came by, unto whom he said, Ho, such a one, turn aside. The man's not even mentioned, because he could have redeemed Ruth, but he didn't. Sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And now notice verse 2. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit ye down here. And they sat down. Now if you come down to the verse 9, what happened later? As these men are sitting and as Boaz goes over the history of what's taken place with this woman and his future mother-in-law and so on, I want you to notice the declaration. And Boaz said unto the elders, and unto all the people, ye are, notice, witnesses this day, that I have brought all that was Elimelech's, and all that was Chilion's and Marlon's, of the hand of Naomi. Moreover, Ruth, the Moabites, the wife of Marlon, have I purchased to be my wife, to raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance. The name of the dead shall not be cut off from among his brethren. And from the gate of his place. Ye are witnesses this day. Now notice, and all the people that were in the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. Now why the witnesses? Well, because oaths were made. Vows were made. Promises were made. And you know scripture, at least you ought to if you're a Christian, that something cannot be testified apart from two or three witnesses. So it's vital. Marriage is a covenant union. If you turn with me to the book of Malachi, chapter 2, verse 14, I want you to see it's very clear here. Malachi 2, 14. And this is one of the indictments, really, upon the land. And we know from the Old Testament that many men were just marrying and divorcing for any reason. This was part of the problem. But I want you to notice this is a very clear verse on why there should be vows and witnesses and so on. Malachi 2.14, And ye say, yet ye say, wherefore? Because the Lord hath been witness between thee and the wife of thy youth, against whom thou hast dealt treacherously. 
yet is she thy companion, now notice, and the wife of thy covenant. You see, a marriage is a covenant relationship, and there were witnesses there. I will honor and obey him till death do us part. I will love her and cherish her till death do us part. Those are promises, not just to men, but before Almighty God. And the idea, you see, of people living together and saying, well, we have made our own promises to each other and not getting married is wholly unchristian. It's wrong. Absolutely sinful and wrong. And the whole idea of a marriage being a private affair is complete nonsense because there need to be witnesses on earth. And God is called as the great witness above all, isn't he? And so marriage is a precious thing and it ought to be done right. So God ordained also headship that God has given to the husband. Ephesians 5.22, notice there, if you turn to Ephesians 5.22, it says there, wives... Submit yourselves unto your own husband as unto the Lord. Now, ladies, that is a very plain and clear teaching of God's word. Submit to your husband as unto the Lord. What does that mean? It means as God has commanded, and so long as that man does not ask you to sin, Now why? 4, verse 23, For the husband is head of the wife, period. Even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Not in some things, ladies, but in everything. And then there's a word for the men. He is not a tyrant, a bully, or a thug, but neither is he a pushover. Neither is he to be the wife in the house. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle, nor any such thing, that he should be holy. So, how does he love his wife? By the washing of the word. But he must wash himself first every day, come under this word. You see, men, our first responsibility is to make sure that we walk right with God. There's nothing in our lives that our wives can say, look, I think you're a bit of a hypocrite. So we have to wash ourselves first. And then the wife, by the daily reading and prayer, not neglecting coming to church. And as we do that, we will find it will make for a wonderful, happy union. And the scriptures have so much don't they, to teach about godly husbands, godly wives. If you to read, ladies, Titus chapter 2. The scriptures are so clear on how older women are to teach younger women how to be good wives, how to be good mothers, how to keep the home, how to cook, how to care, how to love their husbands. It's a practical thing. You can't just love your husbands with your words. You show it by being obedient and submitting in the home and doing all those things. And it should be a delight to clean the home, to cook, to do all those. It should be a delight. That is a woman's fulfillment. If it's not, she should never have been married. But if she doesn't find that's good now, she better do something about it and fix it and learn to enjoy doing it. And the husband 
There's something wrong if he doesn't get in the word and find an enjoyment in the word. I would doubt if the man's a Christian. If the wife has to say, come on, let's do the Bible reading today. Is a man saved? Is he lost? Well, it's a sad day when these things are not right. That's how marriage ought to be. Now concerning the things whereof ye wrote unto me, it says there, verse 1, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now the phrase here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, where it says to touch a woman, he's using discreet language to describe in a very polite way about the conjugal marriage, that physical relationship. It's good for a man if, if he doesn't have to do this, if he doesn't feel that need, that physical need. And if he can live on his own, there's, there's nothing wrong with that. Don't look down upon that, Paul says. In effect, I'm one of these men. He's not saying it's bad if a man marries. He's, he's just not gifted for that. There are, if you just turn with me to Matthew 19, where the Lord Jesus Christ is dealing with these buzz-eyed Pharisees, who can't look past their own laws and their own lusts. I mean, buzz-eyed in a spiritual sense. Matthew 19. And they would just marry and then divorce their wife for any reason. And there was some Jewish tradition that even if she burnt the food, he could divorce her. I think there'd probably be many divorces on that front, if that were the case. But uh, you notice what the Lord Jesus says here, after the Pharisees come to him. The Pharisees also came unto him, verse 3, tempting him, saying unto him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? And he answered and said unto them, Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. Therefore they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let no man put asunder, or tear, break. They said unto him, Why did Moses then command to give a writing of divorcement? And that was, he, he goes on to explain, because of the hardness of their hearts, they were just, if you were to read uh, Deuteronomy 26 there, for any reason. They were twisting what Moses also said. And he gave a, there were some cases where, and by the way, you know, if adultery was committed, the person was stoned to death. But that had to be proven by two or three witnesses. But if the man couldn't come up with two or three witnesses, Moses, under God's sanction, of course, Moses wrote was not wrong. A man could divorce, but he could never take that woman back. That was it. She was as good as dead, but there weren't earthly witnesses. If there were, she'd be stoned to death. He could never take her back. Now you come down to what he says. You notice verse 11. He speaks, and they can't take this teaching, except there be adultery. You, you, can't, you can't divorce your wife. And uh, if you divorce your wife for some other reason than adultery and you go and marry another woman, that's adultery. And then he says this, and they reply, verse, his disciples reply, verse 10, unto him, if this, the case of man, be so with his wife, it's not good to marry, he said. They say, the disciples. Now notice he says in verse 11 that he describes three kinds of eunuchs here. But he said unto them, All men cannot receive this saying, save they to whom it is given. For there are some eunuchs which were so born from their mother's womb. Now what are those eunuchs? Perhaps those men, for physical reasons, they can't be fathers, or they have no desire to be. 
They're eunuchs. And then he says, and there are some eunuchs which were made eunuchs of men. That is, they were either forcefully castrated. Maybe even we think of those that went into Babylon. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And then there be eunuchs which have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. In other words, those that have chosen this path so that they may serve the Lord better. They may not necessarily be castrated, but they choose to physically abstain from this. So that is the teaching of Scripture. And you're coming back here. Nevertheless, it is good for a man not to touch a woman, nevertheless to avoid fornication or sexual infidelity, let every man have his own wife. And by the way, it doesn't say partner there, but it says wife, doesn't it? Wife. Not fiancé, although we do agree with it, that period of engagement, the betrothal period, we think of Joseph and Mary, and so on. And let every woman have her own husband. Let the husband render Verse 3, unto the wife due benevolence, and likewise also the wife unto the husband. They should render this benevolence, whether it's love or physical union, so long as there's this kindness and mutual agreement and wanting to love each other in an emotional and physical way, they, this is their due. This is why they brought together to be one. And you notice, the wife's body and the husband's body is not their own now. In that relationship. Notice verse 3. The wife hath not power over her own body, but the husband. Her body belongs to him, and his body likewise belongs to her. And likewise also the husband hath not power over his own body, but the wife. In other words, if she asks him, he doesn't say, well, it's my body. I can do what I want with it. I have my rights. No, this body belongs to you. And your body belongs to me. This is what we agreed in the union. And that's that. And that applies too for your love and your affection. Not just physical demands, but love and affection. And we have to say we all fail here, don't we? But notice what he says, defraud ye not one the other. If one is asking, you don't defraud that. You've promised it. Render. Now there is an exception, but it's an interesting exception. Have a look with me, verse 5. Except it be with consent for a time, why? That ye may give yourselves to fasting and prayer. For the Lord! You're saying to the husband, of the, you're saying, I'm, I'm busy, I've got all this going on in my life. Can I just have a moment to get with the Lord, to pray, to read my Bible? You've been giving all your time, your attention to that person, and it's, it would be wrong, wouldn't it, to drag that person ultimately from serving the Lord. You've got to remember that that spouse is ultimately the Lord's, and they're given to you as a gift. And if he or she needs to spend a little more time in prayer, in quiet time, not to go to the beauty salon, not to go to the shopping mall, not to go to some place where they don't need to be, but to spend time with the Lord. That is the only and proper legitimate means to do so. You see, the whole thing is designed for God and for a godly life. Physical intimacy should never be denied if one asks and request it for any other reason other than the Lord. 
defraud ye not one of another. Why? Look at the potential danger that ye may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again, as you should do. That's right, that's proper. Now notice that Satan tempt you not for in continuancy. So you don't continue on in this. That would be wrong, wouldn't it? whole reason is that you, you honor the Lord chiefly because you can't really have a proper marriage without the Lord. Let me say this, ladies, you'll never be a good wife if you don't put the Lord first. And if you put the Lord first, you'll be a, a very good wife and you'll be a very good husband. It's always God first, then the husband, then the children. You never put the children above the husband. Never. Scriptures are very clear there. Children become and can become rulers in the house. And women have great power to ruin the marriage. So do men. When men don't walk with the Lord. When men don't obey God's word. When we think we know better than God. May God protect and bless our families. You know, the, the marriage union is likened to that of the church in Jesus Christ. Paul tells us this, doesn't he, in Ephesians 5. And we need the Lord to protect us. It's the one area where he will attack in the church, the Christian marriage. We'll deal more next week with virgins, those either male or female. There's nothing wrong with being single. It's a great gift. Don't look down upon it. That may be the Lord's will for you. It may not be. But praise God for whatever he's given us. And remember, we're not his. Whether we're single, whether we're married, we are the Lord's. And that's all that counts, friends. One day in heaven, there's going to be no marriage there. But we'll be forever with the Lord. Amen.